Good morning, Rimrock. How are you today? How are you today? Thank you. I thought I was here by myself. Whew. Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Boomer Roland. I'm the children's pastor here. And uh, my privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter 10. And we're uh, in the middle of this uh, a series walking through the book of Romans, kind of taking our time with it. And so if you're new uh, to Rimrock or you haven't been here much, uh, welcome. And uh, out in the, just outside the doors here is a, a packet of... Um, kind of devotion uh, material that we've prepared that uh, you'd be able to take with you. And so the book of Romans is uh, significant. It's, uh, it's not short and it's deep. And so uh, what we do on Sunday mornings is just um, kind of skim across the top a little bit. Um, we kind of do the best that we can do uh, with the time and the the format that we have here, but our desire is that it would whet your appetite to really uh, dig into God's Word to learn more. There's so much more to the book of Romans um, that's really critical um, to our faith and the way that we respond to God and the way that we walk with God. So let me encourage you to pick up one of those packets. You can also find them on uh, on our website um, and download them yourself. But those devotions will help you to really um, sit in the chapter that we're talking about and really to begin to explore and to find um, uh, all that God has for you through his word because his word was designed to reveal him to you uh, individually. And so we want you to interact with God's word that way. Um, in uh, 2012... My family, um, my wife, my daughter, my son, and I got to join a group to go to Haiti and uh, serve for a week there. And uh, it was a blast. We did lots of different uh, work, but as we got to about uh, uh, day four of that week, um, um, Hurricane, uh, <clears throat> Hurricane Sandy came through the Caribbean and did not hit Haiti, but got close enough that we had three days of the heaviest rain that I've ever seen. Um, and the, the places where we were staying uh, all had tin roofs, and uh, it was so loud, we literally could not hear each other uh, talking to each other in those buildings. It was crazy. Uh, so for three days, we just watched it rain. We were in the mountains, and so just... Uh, just some incredible flooding and, uh, and the water that came rushing through. In order to get to the place where we were staying, the little camp that we were staying, uh, we had to cross uh, a river. And we, as we came in, we took a bridge uh, across the river, and it was not a big deal at all. But we, uh, as the rains uh, stopped, then uh, we, we walked from our camp down to see kind of what the status of the uh, of the the river was that we had crossed, and it was incredible how it had uh, oh, far oh, overflowed its banks and, uh, and had uh, washed out the bridge that we had um, taken to get in. And so uh, we didn't have a way to get home. Uh, the interesting thing was just, um, uh, just about a year before that, I had had a heart attack, and uh, we, uh, so I was on some medications, and at that point, 
I'm much more comfortable with it now, but at that point, I was uh, uh, far less comfortable without my medications, and you all know that when you go on a trip, you're supposed to take like three months worth of supplies or something crazy like that. I didn't. I counted out my pills. So I had exactly what I needed, right? And and we got the news that we were going to be stuck until the until the river went down enough that we could just cross it, it like just just drive across it like i'm not sure how that was going to happen anyway but <clears throat> but the experts there just said well we'll just wait so we waited and we were in haiti an extra week so now if i was to start the story by saying hey in 2012 we went on vacation in the caribbean and uh, we had to spend an extra week you'd be like Oh, tough life. But we were in Haiti, and I was out of pills. So, um, so we were feeling this um, um, anxiety. Like, we wanted to get home. So we were calling. We were hoping that maybe we could provide us enough of a sob story that they would, I don't know, send a helicopter in for us. Did I mention it was Haiti? And so, um, <clears throat> so they said, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, so we waited a week, and, uh, and, and as every day, we would go down, we would check the condition of the river. Eventually, the river went from one huge raging river kind of to three fingers of, uh, of a river. You know, you could see the, uh, um, you could see some, some, uh, whatever it's called in the middle. It's not a bank because it's in the middle. What's it called? Like a, What? Yeah, like an island. Well, okay, what? Well, island. That's a, that's grandiose. I can't think of the word. But it doesn't matter. Anyway, so there were three fingers. Then we had to be able to cross. And so uh, after we had been there a week, we just said, we're just going to go for it, right? Which sounds really stupid right now, but <clears throat> but we did. But um, but here's the thing. We were we we began praying that um, God would help us to. Um, to get out. And so we had, we had uh, five or six uh, Haitian men. I'm not sure what gym they went to, but these guys, um, these guys were ripped. I mean, they were, they could have done workout. Whew, they, you know, I mean, yeah. And so they just picked up our luggage on their heads and they crossed it. Man, I mean, it was awesome. And so here's the whole group. Their lu- all of our luggage is on that side now. And we were really hoping they would come back for us. <laughs> and they did. And, and so they came back and they, you know, they'd pick up the kids and the kids just kind of went under one arm, right? And they, whoop, there they went right across. And then I noticed that when they came back, there were only a couple of us guys left on this side, and I, I noticed that there was, they had a little conference over here, and I don't, I'm not sure what the Haitian version of rock, paper, scissors is, <laughs> but there was something going on over there, like, dude, I don't want the big guy, you know what I'm saying, like, so they were doing something over there to try to figure that out, and whoever lost came over, and there were two of them. Nobody picked me up. I'll just, I'll just there's a spoiler for you. Nobody picked me up, but uh, one guy under each arm, and here we went across this, and I, it was thigh high, and as we were going, <clears throat> there were, 
bowling ball sized rocks that were rolling in the current. I mean, it was, it was still very strong. I was so thankful for those two guys and their zero body fat that they could get us across safely, but they, they did trip after trip after trip to get our whole group across. Um, literally, they rescued us and got us to the other side where we had a vehicle and, um, and we were able then to get um, into, back into Port-au-Prince and uh, to catch a flight a couple days later. But uh, incredible. But, but I tell the story because sometimes our need to be rescued is obvious, right? We, we realize that we've extinguished all of our own resources and we need somebody to rescue us. But I find that there are many times in life where our need to be saved or our need to be rescued uh, is not as obvious. It's, uh, we're a little oblivious to our, to our need. And I think that that kind of sets the tone for chapter 10. As we look at chapters 9, 10, and 11 all together, 9, 10, and 11 are kind of a parenthetical thought for, for Paul. You know, we've been talking in 6, 7, and 8. He talks about uh, the, the, the path to salvation and that salvation comes through faith, not through our own uh, efforts. But then when we get to chapter 9, 10, and 11, yeah, Paul just does a little parenthesis and he just takes a break to focus on Israel. He looks at Israel specifically to say, they've missed it. Israel in the past has rejected God. And in chapter 10, they still are missing the Messiah. But in chapter 11, spoiler alert, sorry, Ben. Um, but in chapter 11, that's coming, that God is still faithful to pursue Israel in the future. So Paul just kind of takes this break, 9, 10, and 11. So when you're reading, you read 9, 10, and 11. Read it as a group because that's, uh, it, it's a specific thought that Paul has there. So we're looking at chapter 10 today. And in chapter 10, what we're seeing is how Israel was continuing to miss that Christ was the Messiah or is the Messiah. And what's interesting to me is that today's message isn't just about history. In fact, when I kind of came to chapter 10 and I began to read it and I was looking at it in the context of 9, 10, and 11, I'm thinking to myself, like, the whole thing's about Israel in Paul's day. Like, so? But the more that I read it, the more I began to see these parallels between the way that Israel responded to God and, the, and Israel's attitude towards Christ and this very interesting parallel to the way that our culture today views God and responds to Christ. I think that it's, it, I think it's a chapter that has some powerful connections in the way that our culture um, interacts with uh, faith in God. Now, when we start with Romans chapter, uh, into Romans 10, in Romans 10, 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for, this, uh, for the Israelites is that they may be saved. 
In fact, in the New Living Translation, it says, the longing of my heart. Paul had this deep heart's desire that Israel would be saved. But, um, and it, chapter um, 10, verse 1, really closely parallels the way that he started chapter 9. So if you're in your Bibles, back up one chapter to chapter 9, because I think we see it even more vividly there. In chapter 9, starting in verse 2, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for if I could, if I could wish that I myself would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, uh, those of my own race. Paul is saying, I literally would give up heaven if it meant that the Israelites could be saved. Paul had a deep desire for the salvation of his countrymen. And we could probably preach a whole sermon just on that. Paul's deep desire for the lost. And yet that's where we start. He had a deep desire for lost people. But then we go on, and I want to look then, in your bulletins I gave you some little fill-ins because I'm a children's pastor guy, so I like puzzles. So, so if you really, if you want to play the game and stay, um, then under the, the line, you can write in what you think it's going to be and then see if you guessed right. That's, that's the way I do fill-ins. That, that's, that's what makes it fun for me. What's he going to say? So you can fill in the, like, but fill this in as you go. Here's number one. Are you ready? I give you no, no warning then to try to guess, but here we go. Here's number one. They didn't feel a need to be saved. They didn't feel a need to be saved. Let's explore that a little bit. Uh, Still in chapter 9, verse 4, verse 4, Paul says, "They, uh, they are the people of Israel. They are chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them, and he gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Verse 5 says, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul is saying, look, the Israelites have this great and rich heritage. For thousands of years, God has been promising or given the promise and renewed the promise, his covenant with this group of people. And, And way back with Abraham, he gave Abraham three promises. Do you remember? If you, you remember back to Sunday school, but the three promises that God gave to Abraham that then were passed down through the generations. I will make you a, a nation of people. I will give you a land to live in, and you will be a blessing to the whole earth, right? God made these three promises, and he reiterated the promises throughout history for his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And at some point um, through the years, Israel began to, uh, I think rightly, make that their identity, saying we are God's people, we are chosen, God fights for us. And, um, and, 
And so it's not uh, weird that the nation of Israel become to uh, rely on that heritage. The problem is that they relied on their, uh, their, the heritage of their past and had missed what God had called them to. Uh, they had missed the Messiah. They thought that, oh, well, we're good with God because he has chosen us in the past. We're good with God because of the promises and the way that he interacted with our ancestors, with our heritage, is enough to save us. And so they didn't really feel a need to be saved. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Nor because they are his descendants, and they are all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. You see what they missed? They say, well, we're, we're all children of Abraham. We're all descended from Abraham. God made the promise to Abraham. But here, Paul is clarifying what God, he says, no, you, Ishmael was a child of Abraham, and yet he isn't in the covenant. And now Paul overlays those, the historical family tree. And he brings some clarity to it for the Israelites to say, look, just the way, even though Ishmael was a, an offspring of Abraham and he wasn't in the promise, that was Isaac. In the same way, if you're not a part of Christ, then you've missed the promise. In the time when Paul was writing, God had fulfilled two out of the three promises. He had made Abraham into a nation, the nation of Israel. He had given them a country to live in, a land to live in. But the blessing, the blessing part was still to be fulfilled. It was coming. In fact, it was current in Paul's day. I mean, it was, it was budding. It was, it was blooming. It was beginning to, uh, to produce fruit because the blessing was that Christ came through the nation of Israel. But I, I get the feeling that Israel kind of had the attitude that said, well, we're a blessing to the world just because we exist. They had missed it. They were missing it. And so Israel didn't feel this need to be saved. You know, I got to thinking several years ago, it, it, I was reminded of it this week, but several years ago, um, I, I began to really pay attention to my, my, my family's story. On my dad's side, my great-grandmother um, was a, a nurse and went to work as a missionary in India and spent many years uh, as a missionary in India. And then her daughter, my grandmother um, and grandfather, spent 50 years on the mission field in India. 
And I didn't see them a whole lot growing up. They would come home on furlough, and um, we would get to see them a little bit. And then after they retired, then we got to see them much more, and Grandma passed away, and we had several years with Grandpa um, getting to hear some really neat stories. But here's the reason that I bring it up. That the Roland family has quite a, a rich history of engagement in the kingdom. And I didn't really understand all of that until uh, many years after I had come to the Lord. And I am glad for that. Because I think there's a part of me that really could have been in the same kind of boat as Israel, thinking, oh, well, I mean, I'm a Roland. I mean, look at what my great-grandmother did. Look at what my grandparents have done for the kingdom. Like, I'm good. because of my heritage, because of what others had done. And then I remembered this phrase, and when I shared it with some people this week, it was brand new for them, which is interesting. But here's a phrase that came to mind. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Have you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that comment? God doesn't have grandchildren, right? Let me explain it. Because when a person comes to Christ, they are adopted as children. We don't get in on anybody else's coattails. That faith is our response to God, and then we're adopted as children. God doesn't have grandkids. And yet that's, that's kind of what Israel, that was kind of their mindset. And yet I find that even today, many people don't realize their need to be saved. In our culture, I find that there are people in um, a couple of different places. Uh, and one of those places is that they're just kind of oblivious as to what's going to come. Well, I don't know. When you die, you're just done, and they put you in the ground, and there is no anything else. I mean, it's just what we can see, and so you're buried, and you're done, and they don't, they don't even think about what's to come. And if that really is the end... And when, when our bodies die and they just put us in the ground, then there is nothing else. Then there is no need to be saved. And I think some people have this other kind of view of, uh, well, you know, I, I don't think that you really have to worry about it much. I, it'll all work out. I don't know how that that it's going to work out for them, but, but there's this profound misunderstanding of their need to be saved. In fact, when I met, uh, I met a neighbor of mine, his name's Doug, and, uh, you know, we did the what do you do, what do you do kind of thing, and he got to the question first. So what do you do? Uh, I'm one of the pastors at Rimrock Church. I've gotten much more comfortable saying that, although the response from people is uh, usually one of two things. Either I start getting questions that are very hard to answer, or we're done with the conversation. <laughs> what do you do? Well, I'm, a, I'm one of the pastors at Rimrock Church. Oh, first thing out of his mouth. He didn't even bother to answer the question, what do you do, right? I tried to sneak it in there real quick. 
The first thing he says, well, I'm, a, I'm an agnostic. He said, but I'm sure you're going to try to convince me. Many other people have. So, I mean, go for it. Now, if I'm going to be very transparent with you this morning, I really don't know what an agnostic is. And I certainly don't know what Doug believes. But I'm really looking forward to getting to know. Right? But, but my sense is that somewhere in, and I, it, labels at times are very unhelpful because I don't really know what Doug believes. But, but my thinking is somewhere in that worldview, there's a missing need to be saved. And I, I don't know what's coming. I don't know if there's a God. And if there is, I don't know that I really care. But there's a missing need to be saved. I'm looking forward to getting to know Doug and kind of learning about what he believes about life and death and that need. But it's an interesting parallel between Israel and our culture today that they both seem to miss the need. They don't feel the need to be saved. Let's look at the second thing that we notice out of this chapter, and that is uh, they were comfortable, the Israelites, they were comfortable in their effort to be right. They were comfortable in their effort to be right. In fact, Israel thought that their attempts to follow the law gained God's favor. And I think that this, this one, uh, there are parallels not only to the unbelieving culture, but also um, for some of us uh, in the church as well. Look at Romans chapter 10. We're finally in chapter 10 now. Welcome. Um, Romans chapter 10, let's start with verse 2, where Paul says, For I can testify about them, the Israelites, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see that? Paul understood. Paul connected with this because uh, pre-conversion, right? We see it right at the beginning, uh, a, a few chapters into the book of Acts. We see Paul zealous for God. But it was, a mis, it was a misunderstood kind of relationship. In fact, Paul's zeal for God led him to persecute Christians, to put them into jail and to kill them. He was zealous for God, but he was pursuing God and righteousness for God in the wrong way. Paul felt like, and the Israelites felt, feel like, we can be right with God by obeying the law, by doing what God has told us to do, or by pursuing in our own efforts uh, the means of righteousness. They had misunderstood the way that God had called them to respond. They were comfortable in their own effort to be right. In fact, it became kind of the delineation mark for them to say, we follow the law, you do not. Obviously, you need salvation. That was the, the line that they had drawn. Not we have Christ and you don't, and so let's share it with you. No, 
we follow the law, you do not, you need to be saved. And here's the thing, guys. This attitude has crept into the church as well. Those early Christians in the book of Acts, those early Christians in the book of Acts, they worked hard to remove that and to make sure that the doctrine was sound, that faith comes, I mean, salvation comes by faith, belief in Christ, not any of the things that we do. In fact, that's what Paul's exploring in 6, 7, and 8. This is how salvation comes about in a person's life, not because of what you do, but because what Christ has already done and how do we receive it. But Israel was comfortable in their efforts, in their own efforts, to be right. And I find this attitude also is present in our culture today. For those who say, well, yeah, maybe there is something that comes after death, How do we get there? There's a misunderstanding. In January, uh, I started driving for uh, Lyft. So if y'all need a ride someplace, give me a call. Actually, don't call me. You have to use the app. But that, it's a, never mind. Okay. So, <clears throat> but I started driving for Lyft. And I've got some uh, crazy cool stories about picking people up and, you know, the, again, the first, convers- the first question everybody asks, almost everybody, I can count on one hand the number of people who don't start with this conversation. So what do you do? I'm telling you, it's one of two responses. I'm one of the pastors at Rimrock Church. Oh. Can you turn up the radio? <laughs> or... they start asking questions that are sometimes really hard to answer, especially in about a four-minute car ride, right? But I was talking to one lady named Sarah, and as we were in the midst of the conversation, this wasn't her leading comment, but this came up in the conversation, and Sarah says, uh, you know, I don't really know what's to come, but I mean, if there is something that comes after death, well, you know, I think basically people are, are good. I mean I, I, I mean, I try to be a good person. And so I think that when, you know, I mean, if there is something that I'm, I'm basically a good person, so I don't know why God wouldn't, you know, let me into heaven if, if such a thing exists. And it's, at its core, it's the same thing that Israel's thinking here. That, it, that whatever happens in the future and my acceptance by God is based on what I do. And, and brothers and sisters, friends, let me just say, I'm so glad that that's not the truth. Because we're all sunk. Every one of us. There's not one of us here that can stand on our own. And for those of us who have come to put our faith in Christ, it was because at some point we came to realize our profound need to be rescued. 
And then, after maybe searching and trying and testing all of the ways that we had to be rescued, some of us have come to understand that the only way for us to be rescued is by the one who didn't have to pay for his own sin, but instead could be offered in our place. Friends, it doesn't matter how good we are. It's usually when we say, when we use phrases like, I'm a pretty good person, it's a comparative phrase. Like, I'm a pretty good person compared to that guy. And I'll just tell you, you can always look around and find somebody that you're a little bit better than until you switch the topic and you're talking about something else, in which case then there's always somebody who's a little bit better than you in another area. There's no hope in that. And then there's also a whole lot of anxiety that comes. And you know what? I lived way too many years as a believer wondering every day, am I saved? Because yesterday was a bad day. And folks, it has been a blessing to get to the place where I finally understood the truth, and that is my position in Christ is secure. That is done. My old life now what am I working on? Sanctification? How do I live in the reality that I'm adopted and I'm a new creature? And so how does that change the way that I live day to day? It has nothing to do with my salvation. But I get to live in the freedom that grace provides. And there is a proper response to it. It's not a ticket to live any way that you want it is uh, an open door to be able to live in response to what's already true. Well, let's look at the third one. The third one this morning, then, is that they both, both of these groups of people, they both needed the same solution. Both uh, the Israelites, the, the ones who uh, believed, hey, because of my heritage, I'm in, or those that believe because I follow the law, I'm good with God, both of them needed the same solution. If you look in verses uh, uh, 12 and uh, 12 and 13, it says, Paul says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter how, morally, uh, how moral you are or how immoral, how good or how evil Every one of us has the same need, and that's Christ to stand in our place. Every one of us. And that was true in this day, and it's true in our culture. The gospel of grace frees us from the need to perform, and it leads us into an attitude of thanksgiving. We desperately need to realize our need. We desperately... I should fix that. We, we desperately need to realize that we need to be saved. We need to be rescued. It's the first step. But then, how do we do that? And boy, 
Look at 14 and 15. How then, Paul says, how then can the culture, can the world, can the Israelites, how then can they call on the one uh, that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul's laying out a question for those of us uh, who are believers, who understand the need to be saved. Not just our need, because we've responded to it, but the world's need, the culture's need. Uh, even those sitting in here who are still uh, thinking, man, I've got to do in order to be loved or accepted by God. People who don't know the truth need the truth, and how are they going to know unless we share it? When Blake was four years old, we lived in Arizona, and we had a neighbor, Louise. Louise was a sweet lady, a widow. Uh, she was 90 years old when we got to know her. We kind of started a friendship. She lived across the street by herself, and she would come over. We would have uh, dinner together, and um, she fed her dog um, steak. And we decided that, well, we didn't judge. Well, we did, but not out loud to her. But there came a time when, this isn't part of the story, this is an aside, because I'm a dog lover. Um, but when we adopted, uh, after Louise passed away and we took her dog, and like we adopted her dog, that dog didn't get steak. <laughs> it, was, it was a very rude awakening for Robin the dog. It's like, what's, what is this? It's hard dog food, dude. That's, that's what it is. A dog, anyway, ask me about the dog's teeth sometime. Um, <clears throat> it is a whole thing. Anyway, let's go back. So we, had, uh, so we loved Louise, and she had come over for dinner one night, and then uh, when we were done with dinner, we had walked her back across the street. She opened her um, garage door and went in, and, and uh, we did the little code thing for her, closed the garage door. Anyway, we went over to check on her the next morning. It was regular that we would do that. But we went over, we rang the doorbell, and Louise didn't come to the door. She, she didn't move fast. She was 90, and it was okay. And so we waited, and we rang the doorbell, and then we knocked. She couldn't hear very well, so we knocked louder. And then we heard something. It was weird. It was kind of like a, a moaning. That was not really a good thing. We checked the door, couldn't get in. But we were afraid that, you know, something was up with Louise. We didn't know how to get into the house. So, um, so we sent Blake, who was four, through the dog door. I think the most fun that he's ever had. And, and he went, you know, he opened the door into the garage. He used the, the button. He opened the garage door. And, and Louise had fallen trying to get up a couple of stairs into her house. And had spent the night kind of laying there in the garage. 
And, you know, we called, and Louise was good. She was fine. Nothing broken, just a long night on a cold floor. But there are points in time when we recognize pretty profoundly our need to be rescued. And sometimes the only way that the people who need to be rescued are going to be rescued is if we go to them. Sometimes we wait and we think, well, they'll come to me. And I mean, I'm happy to share if they'll just start the conversation. But there are times, folks, and Paul makes it pretty clear here, that the people who need to be rescued can't come to us. Or they don't really know their need to be rescued. And so Paul says, how are they going to believe unless they've heard? And how are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? And how is somebody going to tell them unless somebody is sent to tell them? And here's, here's the good news. I'm not talking about missionaries and preachers this morning. It's every believer has been sent. At the end of Jesus' life on earth, right before he um, goes back to heaven, he says to his disciples, therefore, in Matthew 28, 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, be, to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I'm with you in the journey. Every one of us as believers has been sent. Not with a club, Peter says, be prepared always to give a reason for the faith that you have in Christ, but do it in love. I read a book last week by a guy named Bob Goff. It was called Love Does. It's probably been out forever, but it's new to me, and so now I'm telling people about it. It's a great book, Love Does. And in that Bob tells this story about um, <clears throat> several years with his kids. They would go to the White House uh, around Easter time when the, uh, when the White House would do the Easter egg hunt, right? And everybody would be all dressed up, and then they would do the Easter egg hunt out on the front lawn of the White House. And he said, we never got invited to that. But they would um, stand on the outside of the fence, and they would hide eggs in the little strip of grass on this side of the fence and they would all get dressed up and then his kids would find the eggs. And he said it wasn't hard to find because there weren't very many places to hide them but his kids just thought, yeah, we're really good at finding Easter eggs, right? Bob said, we never got invited to that event. He told another story as well that I won't tell you this morning, I'll save it when you read the book. But here's what he said. He said, it reminds me of the Bible. And Jesus tells a parable and he says that my father, or that the man, a man put on this great banquet and he invited all of his friends. He invited all of the important people and they were all too busy to come to his banquet. And so the man sent out his servants to invite everyone who doesn't get invited to stuff, right? And they came. And here's what he said. Here's what Bob said. Our job 
is to be the ushers who show people to their seats that someone else has purchased. Not to be the bouncers at the door deciding who gets in. Let me say it again. Our job is to be the ushers, showing people to their seats that have already been purchased. Not the bouncers at the door deciding who gets in. Friends, there are people in our world who don't know their need to be saved. But God has sent others with a message, wrapped in hope, wrapped in love, wrapped in tenderness, wrapped in grace, but a message about how they can be rescued because the solution has already been provided. But they need to hear it. And it's our job to take the message. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the incredible truth that you have provided the solution to our need. God, that you have rescued us. And Father, I pray for those today who are saved and yet continue to live as if they need to earn your love or your acceptance. Father, would you help them to see the truth that, you, that what Christ did on the cross is sufficient. Father, help them to believe and live according to the truth that they're already adopted and that you can't love them any more than you already do. Father, I pray for every person in here, every believer, Father, that you would put on our hearts a burden to share the truth, to share the hope, to share the, 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 the means by which people can be rescued. Father, before it's too late for them. Father, would you open our eyes to see the opportunities? Would you give us the courage to start the conversation? Would you give us the wisdom to respond um, well with que to their questions? And Father, would you help us to be the ones that would show them into the banquet that you've already prepared, that you've already paid for? Invite them in to be a part of your kingdom. We love you. Amen.